Southern will use number 60 in a little while. Good evening and greetings in Jesus' name. If you would please turn to the third chapter of Colossians. We are continuing our study of this epistle and we would like to read a few verses. <clears throat> we'll read verses 5 through, well let's read 5 through 17. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked some time when ye lived in them. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. I would first note the testimony to Brother Dean's exhortation to prayer in verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. I strongly concur with him, as I'm sure all of us do, regarding the widespread, the thorough applicability of the Word of God to our lives. Tonight we are going to look at this passage of Scripture primarily verses 5 through 14. The passage follows what we have been talking about, of course, for a couple of sermons in chapter 3 verses 1 through 4. There we saw that because we are risen, we are to seek the things that are above where Christ sits on the right hand of God. Verse 2 says we are to set our minds on the things above, and there he says, and not on the things on the earth. And, and that will become more important, I hope, if I can keep my thoughts straight as we move along. For now, I want to emphasize that. Paul says we are to set our minds on things above, and with the same intentionality, we are not to set our minds on things on the earth. Verse 3 tells us this is because we are dead. We are, our old man is crucified and our life is hid with Christ in God. And then Paul says something that's just amazing to me when you just stop and think about this fourth verse. Christ is not going to appear in glory without his church. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall we appear with him in glory. What a beautiful thought that is. Now Paul moves on from there, and of course, those first four verses were, were in rebuttal to what he had disproved 
in chapter 2 regarding the, the content and the intention of the false teachers. And so now what he's doing is the biblical response, the biblical response to this, this, this past, immediate past passage, these first four verses, based upon these first four verses in chapter 3, this is now Paul's response to that. And it is also the biblical response to how we are going to combat the lust of the flesh. Remember Paul said in the second chapter that, that all, of, all of the false teaching that he had been combating in the second chapter may look good, it may sound good, but it has absolutely no utility in terms of combating and conquering the lusts of the flesh. What Paul is talking about here is the biblical remedy for conquering the lusts of the flesh. Our focus tonight is going to be rather narrow. We are going to focus on the topic of the mortification of sin. The mortification of sin. We saw that in verse 5. Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. I intend for this to only be an introduction, somewhat of a survey of the, of the subject of mortification. I want to help us understand what mortification is. I hope that we'll be able to show its relationship to other biblical principles. In fact, I might just do that right now. Mortification means, very simply, to put something to death. That you, you can't get anything else out of that word. It means to put something to death. To mortify means to kill. It doesn't mean that when the little nine-year-old girl walks into a room and there's a black widow spider hanging off the door in front of her, and she goes, ha, ah, I'm mortified. That's not what mortification means. It doesn't mean that I'm scared. It doesn't mean that I'm exasperated. It doesn't mean that I'm surprised. It means that something is put to death. And I want to use it very strictly in that term, in that sense this evening, because that is very much the biblical sense in which Paul is going to use the word. Hopefully in the future, we'll be able to think about the how of mortification, but for tonight, we're going to talk about the what. What is it? What is its relationship? Well, it's related to the idea of putting off, and we're going to see that in this passage. There's another word, and I apologize for this word. I, I think it's a very unlovely word, but, but for centuries, theologians have used the word vivification. I, I'm sorry, I, that, that's a horrible word. Vivification. Mortification and vivification. V-I-V-I-F-I-C-A-T-I-O-N. Vivification. It means to restore vitality. It, I'm just going to use it because if you read about mortification, you're going to have to read that, that word, vivification. Vivification speaks of life. It speaks of adding vitality to something. It corresponds with the biblical term to put on something. And we're going to see that tonight, though I promise I'm not, I'm not even going to try to use that word again, if at all possible. Mortification has relationship to sanctification as, as an element of sanctification. It is not sanctification technically. It is an element that contributes to sanctification. Why is this important? Well, I hope as we move along, we're going to see the, the, the essential role that is played by this doctrine of mortification in our lives, how it is a contributor to a, a more fully developed and robust Christian life. Mortification of sin probably is one of those biblical doctrines that's got kind of a bad rap because it's been misapplied over the centuries. And, and unfortunately, it has been negatively associated with Puritan doctrine which I find extremely curious because perhaps the greatest book ever written on mortification was written by a man named John Owen, and it's on the mortification of sin, and it is nothing like the characterizations that people make out of it. Mortification of sin is not some drab, austere, sterile 
principle in scripture that, that means we've all got to kind of walk around looking like we hate life and everything's falling apart at the seams and we can't enjoy anything. We, we, just every, every aspect of our life is death. We're putting everything to death. It, it, nothing, if you were to, if you were to read Owen, which is a very cumbersome book to read because he, he wrote in, in that old English and, you know, you get 25, 30 word sentences out of him. Owen is, Owen is anything but dry and austere and bleak and sterile. And, and I'm not, I'm not here to, to necessarily promote or to preach from John Owen's book, but my point is mortification, while it sounds negative, while it sounds, while it sounds kind of, of, of like a drag, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing when you realize what exactly the scripture is saying that mortification will do in our lives. And so hopefully I can, I can, um, transfer some of, of those thoughts to you in the next couple of sermons. Our intention tonight is also to, to look at mortifications um, relationship to and contribution to other biblical doctrine that is important in every one of our lives. We, we can't avoid the reality that mortification, as we think through it and as we, as we adapt, uh, adapt it into our lives, mortification is going to lead us to a much holier walk than if we ignore it, than if we think, well, that's outdated, it's antiquated, it, 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 it has no relevance to 21st century life. If we think that way, we're going to miss something absolutely essential to what God desires for our lives. So our plan this evening is to look at this passage of Scripture relatively quickly and then make some observations and then see how mortification actually applies basically across the board in Christian doctrine, especially in terms of sanctification and, and communion with God and conformity to Jesus Christ. And I hope that I can convey how essential this doctrine is to our Christian lives. Before we go on, let's sing together. Hymn number 60, if one of you brothers would start that, please. Let's look at this passage and see if we can understand what mortification is and how it relates to other doctrine in the Scripture. Verse 5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And of course, as we mentioned, this verse re refers back to what Paul was saying about, about the false teachers and about our identity in Christ. That, that passage of the first four verses of chapter three is very heavily slanted toward understanding our identity in Christ. Because of that teaching, this is the logical response. Mortification is the logical response to an, an accurate understanding of who we are in Christ and the ongoing struggle with sin. And, and I want you to notice the wording of, of Paul here says, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. He, he is talking here, uh, the language I think is fairly clear, he's talking about the members of our body. And he's talking about the fact that the members of our body can become engaged in sinful activity. Let me read you two verses, both of them from Romans chapter 6, that, that parallel this. Verse 16 says, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. Verse 19 speaks in a similar manner and says, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members, servants, to uncleanness and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants, to righteousness, unto holiness. The apostle here in this fifth verse is giving one of, of those vice lists that he uses 
a couple of times here in this passage, and he uses elsewhere. Oftentimes they're, they're categorized as a vice list, and then there's a virtue list. But Paul is, is giving this vice list, this list of sinful behavior, and he is saying to the Colossians, mortify your members, put to death this sinful behavior in the members of your body. Now, we understand that the human body is not in and of itself sinful, but we likewise understand that the human body and, and, and its actions are susceptible to the influences of sin. And, and if, you would, if you would look at this vice list for a minute, and, and Paul seems to be focused on our private life, he, he's talking about fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, covetousness, and then he concludes and says, which is idolatry. But several of these vices, several of these sins that he's mentioning do not start off to be sin. Now, young folks, I reckon that you don't use the word concupiscence just a whole lot when you're writing reports at school. It, concupiscence talks about lust. It talks about, about desire. But notice how he says here, evil concupiscence. It's going too far in a desire. It's going outside the bounds of propriety in desiring something or covetousness. Covetousness may start as a desire to provide for your family. It may end up as greed. It may end up as something totally outside the bounds of what God intends for normal, acceptable human desire to be. That is because in our bodies we are susceptible to the influence of sin. And Paul is saying here, put that to death. Kill it. And I may say this more than once, but I want you to realize he's not offering an alternative. He's not going back and saying, you know, if mortification doesn't work, then why don't you go back to touch not, taste not, handle not like the false teachers and see if that does any better for you. Or why don't you just ignore it? Why don't you just not worry about it? That's not what he's saying. He is saying you have to look at these things face to face and kill them. Verse number six, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. What I want us to get here is that Paul is clearly talking about sin. And not only is he talking about sin, he is categorizing it as sin. He's saying that the things that I just mentioned in verse number 5 will incite the wrath of God against the children of disobedience. What incites the wrath of God against the children of disobedience? It is nothing less than sin. He's saying these activities bring the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. The, the other point that he's making here to the Colossians is that, by the way, you are no longer in the category of the children of disobedience. Twice in the book of Ephesians, once in Colossians, the apostle uses this label. This label of children of disobedience. They are, they are not just disobedient children. They are children of disobedience. Disobedience is their nature. In fact, in Ephesians chapter two, the apostle will, will use the term, the third verse of the second chapter that, and saying that outside of Christ, we were all the children of wrath by nature. And Paul is saying that the wrath of God comes upon these folks because of the fact that they live in these sins. And he is saying, don't do it. You're not part of that group anymore. And young folks and all of us, I'm saying to us, we are not part of that group anymore. We are not categorized as children of disobedience. Rather, we are children of light and of the day, and we are, we are told to walk accordingly. You see, Paul is continuing even in talking about mortification, he is continuing to talk about who we are in Christ. This is not just some gimmick uh, of the television preachers. This is not just some, some nice-sounding um, doctrine that sells books. This is the heart and the mind of the Apostle Paul for the people of God in, here in the, in the first century church. You've got to know who you are. You cannot have this kind of spiritual amnesia that, well, I kind of forget who I am. Who am I? I mean, I live in the 21st century, and, and uh, I mean, I, I don't know who I am. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. No, Paul is, Paul is cutting through all of that. 
and saying it is critical that we know who we are, and not only that we know who we are, but that we know that there is a fundamental difference, a fundamental difference between you as a believer and, and anybody else out there who's not a believer. Now, that, that, is, that is not saying that we are any better than they are. We, we all started in the same pit. That's not saying that, that we are more privileged than they are because of some value in us that is not inherent in them. It is to say that there is a difference between someone who, who, is, who is under the dominance of the power of darkness as opposed to someone who has been delivered into the kingdom of his dear son, into the kingdom of life. There is a difference, and, and it is, it is, it's disgusting in my own life, and, and I don't want to be that crass toward other people, but I'll just, it's just disgusting to me that sometimes I tend to forget that. And I, and I, I tend to want to sort of move over to some of those things that are really outside of the bounds of propriety for someone who is a child of life, for someone who is no longer a child of disobedience, no longer a child of wrath. And I just want to encourage all of you to, to think seriously about that. Who are you in Christ? That's what Paul is, t is talking to us. And young folks, I want to really plead with you. Uh, plead, scold, admonish, exhort, what, whatever, whatever, whatever sinks into you. I want you to realize that you do not need to waste one second of your time trying to figure out how much of the world you can incorporate into your life so that maybe you can be somewhat acceptable to the people around you. I'm telling you that if you recognize the difference and you follow a life of mortification and that other word and you a life of sanctification and conformity to Christ, that's what counts. That's all that counts. We don't need to spend a minute, a second, trying to figure out how we can integrate our lives as believers into the life of the world. We don't. And that's what Paul is telling us here. Let's move on to verse number 7. Into which you also walked some time when you lived in them. Okay, that should be obvious what Paul is saying. As unbelievers, the Colossians walked in those sins because they lived in that environment of sin. Think back to think back to the fifth chapter of Galatians. Remember what Paul says: if you if you if you walk in the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's about verse fifteen or sixteen. But down around twenty-five or six, he says, if if you live in the Spirit, then walk in the Spirit. He, he's saying, if you're living in the environment of the Spirit, then walk according to the direction of the Spirit. Well, this is the unregenerate side of that equation. Paul is saying that the reason the Colossians walked in sin is because they lived in sin before they were believers. And, and Paul is saying that is not you anymore. Don't, don't go there. Stop acting as if that's who you are. What Paul is, is at great pains to stress to us is that as believers, we are to become what we are. Let me, let me repeat that. As believers, our task is to become what we are in Christ. Now, Paul in verse 8 says, But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Paul is now expanding this vice list. He's going from the private life that he talked about in verse 5, and he's talking about more, more of a public life. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. He's speaking in the context of their current environment. Just, just a note about verse 7 and 8. Paul will do this co constantly in his writing. It's, it's sort of, but now and not yet. There, there is that, there is that approach that Paul has. In, in verse 7, he says, you, you used to walk in these things. But now, put them off. But now, not quite yet. It's a constant struggle in the Christian life to understand our position and then to live experientially, day by day, in a manner that is increasingly consistent with our position. That's a struggle. Paul understands that struggle. The scripture, again, to Dean's point, the scripture addresses that repeatedly. 
Now, in verse 8, Paul is, is introducing the idea of putting off. I'm saying that, that one of the connections to make is between mortification and putting off. And, and yes, the putting off sounds like, like it's talking about a garment, and, and I'm okay with that. But the, the way that something is actually put off in the spiritual sense is that it is mortified. I am not talking about the ability of some people to just by, by gut-wrenching discipline to not do certain things. Okay, I, I want to make it crystal clear. I have no problem with good spiritual discipline. I, I, I don't. I, I appreciate it. But that's not just what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about by the strength of my own resolution, my New Year's resolution, my mid-year resolution, whatever it is, deciding I am just not going to do something. That is not mortification. Sometimes people think that's mortification. That's not mortification. If I have a problem, if I have a problem with drinking too much alcohol, and, and, and if I carry that into my Christian life from my from my youth, and I just resolve, I'm not, I am, I am not going to drink alcohol as a Christian. In fact, I'm going to ask Brother Ben to ask me every week, "Have you drank alcohol this week?" No, I haven't. No, I haven't. No, I haven't. Next week, no, I haven't. No, I just. But deep inside, you know what I want? I want a nice cold Budweiser with a hamburger. I want it with all my heart. I want that beer. Have I mortified my desire to drink excessively? The answer is no. And and I am sure, I am absolutely certain that somewhere down the road, I'm going to take a major fall. I'm going to face plant right in front of that alcohol because I never put that desire to death. And you, and don't just get hung up on one example. You take, you take the implications of that when there's something we really desire that's outside the scope of who we are as believers. We really desire it. The point is, the implication is, if you just stay away from it, if you just abstain from it, I mean, with all of the, all of the power of, of the will that you have, that's not mortification, because some point in the future, if you don't understand mortification, if you don't understand what it means to put that to death and to put it off and cast it from you, you're going to fail. Paul is not offering power of the flesh abstinence as a definition for mortification. He is saying, kill it. Put it to death. Verse number 9 tells us the old man has been crucified with Christ. In fact, I want to read 9, 10, and 11 together because they, they sort of form a, a, a unit in the, in the Scripture. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Jew nor or Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Now Paul seems to be turning his attention here to to our behavior in the church. He's gone from private life to a more more public exhibition of of sin, and now to our life in the church. Notice what the ground of this exhortation is, where he says in verse 9, lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. The old man has been crucified. We know that from Romans chapter 6. The old man is crucified, but now as he, as he shifts to what seems to be a more corporate approach, he is saying, I'm not just talking to you as individuals. I'm saying that this needs to characterize the life of the body of Christ. In Paul's theology, the, the, the body of Christ and the life in the body of Christ is a supernatural thing. It is not just a collection of people who have figured out some cool techniques to try to make themselves look more holy. The church is something much more supernatural than that. It's much more powerful than that. The depth of the power of the spiritual resources that is available to the church of Jesus Christ, I am certain we have not plumbed the depths of that in our private or in our corporate existence. Paul is telling them clearly, do not emulate the deeds of the old man. Stop it. 
don't do it. Look at verse, well, in fact, this is not just an Apostle Paul thing. If you return to 1 Peter chapter 1, let me read you three of verses, three of my favorite verses in all of Peter's writing. Peter says, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. In other words, he's saying, roll up the sleeves of your mind. Get ready to go to work. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, as children of obedience, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he would have called you as holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. I want you to see what Peter is saying here. He's saying that you as Christians are children of obedience. You are now characterized by obedience. You live in the environment of obedience. You used to live in the environment of disobedience. You used to live in the environment of wrath. But now you live in the environment of obedience. And as children of obedience, do not retool yourself into something you no longer are. That's what, P that's what Peter is saying. Don't get shoved back into that mold, sort of like Romans chapter 12. As obedient children, do not fashion yourself according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. The writers of scripture are all consistent about this. They want us to live in accord with who we are in Christ. The movement that we, you know, we've seen it for years, and I'm sure they've seen it throughout the history of the church, saying that we'll be more effective in spreading the gospel if we can relate more to people, if we can be more like them. I, I, maybe I've told this story in here before. I'm going I'm to tell it again. One of the biggest turnoffs to me as a high school drug user, as a long-haired hippie, anti-establishment, just absolutely rotten to the core kid, the biggest turnoff was when, I don't want to say any names, I'm only sure I don't say any names, was when other high school students would come and try to evangelize me, because I was a pretty good target for evangelism, they would come and try to evangelize me, but I knew what their life was like. I knew that what they were saying was not consistent with how they were living. Come Sunday and Monday and Tuesday, they were holy, but on Friday and Saturday night, they were out in the same place as we were, doing the same things we were doing. But then they were going to church the next morning and getting all cleaned up, scrubbed up, until the next week. Brothers and sisters, young people, becoming like who you no longer are in order to reach people who are like that is not an effective tool of evangelism. That is a perfect way to get yourself back into the bondage of sin. You have nothing to offer if, if you're doing the same things that those other people are doing, but you're just doing it under, under the banner of Jesus. That, you have nothing to offer those people at that point. Nobody does. That, that, I, I don't know how to, how to say this other than just the way I'm thinking. That set me back years in my, in my pursuit of salvation. Years. Because I, I just figured that's how all Christians were. Verse number 11. I'm sorry, verse, verse number 10, I, I, I went right by it. And have put on the new man, okay, so here now we're introducing the concept of putting on. That's that adding vitality, adding life. We're putting on this new man, and this new man is renewed in knowledge, and this new man is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You see what Paul is saying here? Natural creation, every human is naturally created after the image of God. Our spiritual creation is the same thing. We are recreated after the image of Jesus Christ. And we know from the testimony of Scripture, from the, from the thorough testimony of Scripture, like Dean told us, that, that we are foreordained to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We are foreordained to be conformed to the image of Him who recreated us. And so when we think about mortification, we see mortification as an element in that process of becoming conformed to the image of Jesus. We are putting to death the sins of the body. And, and now Paul is talking about putting on, and we're going to talk about that in another message. We're putting on the characteristic traits of Jesus Christ. And again, we're not imitating them. I, I, I don't know how it ever got started. I haven't taken the time to research it. But, but the, the idea that we are imitating Jesus Christ, just because that's what one of the words kind of means, 
that, that to me is nonsense. That's like saying that we reflect the glory of God. I mean, come on. We don't reflect the glory of God. We express it. It comes out from in us because Jesus lives in us. We're not imitating him in the sense that whenever when all these brethren are around, I'm going to act like I'm going to tell the line. But when nobody's around, I'm going to act as if I was back there as a child of disobedience. That's the imitation in my mind. It's not true. It's a, it's a show. It's a sham. It's a facade. We are renewed in knowledge after the image of Jesus Christ because that is the goal of our life, to be conformed to him, to give maximum glory to God the Father. I don't know how Paul could be any stronger in condemning behavior that is inconsistent with the image of Jesus Christ. Now he goes on to say, remember in verse 9, 10, and 11, we're talking about behavior within the church. And he says in verse 11, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. When Paul talks about the church, and I want you to think about this. Do you remember Dean's sermon on transformational relationships? Gave us ten points about them. Do you remember, remember that sermon? I'm saying in support of that sermon that these verses are telling us we will not have those kind of transformational relationships if we don't understand the role that mortification plays in our lives. And again, that's not all there is to it. There, there is that putting on and that life, but I'm talking about mortification has to happen in order for us to have the kind of transformational relationships that Dean was talking about. Not only are we as individuals intended to be in the image of Jesus Christ, but the church is intended to be in the image of Jesus Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 would tell us that. Well, that doesn't just mystically happen if all of us are carnal, right? I mean, that, that makes sense, right? If, we're, if, we're, if, if, if the church is full of carnal people, the church is not going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. As every one of us in the church is making progress in holiness, progress in sanctification, progress in conformity to the image of Jesus, which, why would you want to be anything other than conformed to the image of Christ? Who would you rather be conformed to? I mean, it doesn't make any sense if you stop and think about it a little bit. Paul is not saying, and, and, and as he says, there's neither Greek, Jew, circumcision, uncircumcision, barbarian, or Scythian, which is an interesting concept because barbarians and Scythians were both considered to be barbarians. Scythians were just an even lower class than barbarians. So I'm not exactly sure what Paul is, is getting there, but evidently the, the comparison made sense to people in the first century. Bond or free, Christ is all and in all. The distinctions in our life are not eliminated. We are all, we, we're, we're all different people. We know that. We come from different backgrounds. We, we have different personalities. We have different skill sets. But all of that becomes very relative when you look at what the church is supposed to be. The church, given all of those distinctions, given, given the variety of gifts in the body and, and the variation in the combination of gifting from the Holy Spirit, all of that is still meant to bring the church into a unified image of Jesus Christ. It is that unity that is born of diversity under the control of the Holy Spirit, so that regardless of the background in the church, regardless of the background in the people of the church, Christ is the foundational identity of the church. That's what I think Paul is saying when he says that Christ is all and in all. He says the same thing virtually in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. The church is the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ, who fills all in all. It doesn't matter if I'm a quarter Italian and you're 100% German or, or Jacks from India or who all is in the church. At the end of the day, when you shake out all of the, all of the carnal distinctions, every one of us should be progressing in conformity to Jesus Christ. That's our identity. Christ is, if you go back to Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20, we are reminded that Christ is the center of creation and redemption. Christ is the one who holds all things together. 
And it is Christ who brings unity by indwelling all of his people. If you read the end of the 28th verse of the third chapter of Galatians, it's, it's, at a, it's at a, a verse somewhat like verse 11, and he says that it is Jesus who brings unity to all of his people. It's a beautiful thought. The Church of Jesus Christ is a beautiful thing. I, I feel bad that over the years, in our experience, in the experience of Christians throughout the centuries, that the church has not been as beautiful as the New Testament says that it should be. The good news is, we all have the opportunity to contribute to the church being the beautiful bride of Christ that he intends it to be. Listen. Verse 12 says, Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Here we're talking about not vice lists anymore. We're talking about a list of virtues that are intended to be put on. They are consistent. Notice what he says here. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God. In other words, put them on and become who you are in Christ. As the elect of God, you should be putting on, you should be actively cultivating these things in your life, consistent with who we are. Verse 13, Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And and again, the, the pattern and the ground for advocating this kind of relationship within the church is the example of Jesus Christ. This, these transformational relationships that are, re, that, that are dependent upon each of us progressing in our spiritual life. Let me, let me, just, let me just make a comment about verse 14. Uh, we'll, we'll have to talk about it at a later time. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, is Paul talking about charity in terms of superiority or in terms of it is to be put on on top of these other virtues? The language is not exactly clear. We know, we know that charity is the superior virtue based upon what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but we don't know for certain that that's what he's saying. I would tend to think he is talking about putting charity on over top of all of these virtues. Just just follow me through in for a moment. The King James calls it the bond of perfectness. The ESV says, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I'm suggesting that what Paul is saying here, that that over top of all of these other virtues, we are to put on charity, and charity in the exercise of all of these other virtues is what is going to unite them together in perfect harmony. Now, there's other scriptures that will tell us, of course, that it is a superior virtue, and there's more to say about it that we probably aren't going to be able to get to this evening, but I want you to just put this in your memory, if you will. Charity, or love, is absolutely essential to individual and corporate progress in holiness. Love is absolutely essential to individual and corporate progress in holiness. I would direct you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 12 and 13, and I'm sure we're not going to get there tonight. I'd like to make a couple of reflections on this passage of scripture. Mortification of sin is a necessary response to the reality of our identity in Christ. Mortification of sin, putting sin to death, purposefully, intentionally putting sin to death in our life is a necessary response to the reality of our identity in Christ. Mortification does not mean we are to merely abstain from certain behaviors. That might be necessary in some cases. But that is not what mortification means. Mortification does not equal abstinence for the sake of abstinence. It means abstinence because that thing is dead. It is dead as fried chicken. It's just not coming back. It's been put to death. 
we're not just abstaining from it. Number three, mortification means that we are to kill those sins as an active force in our lives. Mortification is not a one-time effort. It is ongoing in the Christian life. Mortification requires that we identify sin for what it really is. Notice what Paul said in verses 5 and 6. He called it sin. He didn't, well, I'm being challenged. I'm more, I'm, I'm decisionally weak in this area. I'm, I'm challenged by alcohol. I'm, you see what I'm saying? We need to be honest enough that we are willing to call these sins what they are. They are sin. They incite the wrath of God. They are inconsistent with our identity in Christ. And no gimmick, nothing else is going to give us the ability to mortify those sins in our lives. Mortification is part of a whole life change. It is not selective. Notice, I, I, I tried to make a point out of those three categories that Paul seemed to be addressing. Private life, public life, church life. The Bible knows nothing of advocating that we look at certain sins and we just say, nope, absolutely, we can't do that. We're, we're, we're going to focus on X number of sins. When, 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 the, when the population of sin in the scripture is X plus how many others, we can't say, well, we're just going to identify these six or seven, and we're going to say these are gross sins, or these are public sins, or these are whatever, and that's what we're really going to focus on, and then, you know what, you're kind of on your own for the rest of them. That is not what the Bible says. Mortification is non-selective. Mortification means kill all of it. It's an effort that will take all of your life. It is hard work. It's intentional, purposeful work that is at least honest enough to say, this is sin, it's not supposed to be in my life, I want to do whatever I can to kill it and get it out of my life, and I am not going to make any exception for anything that I would really like to be doing, but God says I can't. So why mortification? Why should we be interested in something that is such hard work? And it is hard work. And it's lifelong work. It's ongoing work. I mean, why can't we just focus on putting things on? And you're talk I, I, I'm talking purposely about putting things off. I'm talking about this, let's call it the negative side. Why can't we just put things on? Why can't, why can't we just do that? Why can't we look at the virtue list and we'll just, we'll just do the virtue lists? That would be a lot easier. Well, why don't we, like the false teachers, why don't, why don't we, why don't we come up with some ideas on how to manage sin? It won't do any good, but it'll make us feel good that we tried something. That's what Paul combated in the second chapter. Or, hey, here's an even better one. Don't sweat it. Because Christ died for my sins and I believe in Jesus. And I've confessed Christ and his blood for my sins, so why should I worry about it? What, what's the loss of a few rewards when I get to heaven? At least I'm going to get to heaven. It's not salvational, so why should I worry about it? Obviously, I'm being facetious, but those are excuses that people use. The first and foremost reason that we should be interested in mortification is because God commands it. And obedience, unquestioning obedience to the commands of a sovereign God are always appropriate. Always. Now, fortunately, there's more to it than that. God, you know, you brethren who have been fathers, have you ever, have you ever, I've done this, unfortunately, child is doing something, you say, stop, don't do that. How come? Because I said so. Wonderful, wonderful teaching moment, isn't it? Okay, maybe it teaches obedience of a, of a son to a father, and that, that, there's some virtue there. But why, why, why not do that, Dad? Because I said not to do it. 
what, did, what have we taught him other than blind obedience to the will of his father, which, by the way, may change when my circumstances are different and I come home not so, not so tense and not so tired, not so agitated, because I've noticed in my own life that something that was not allowed one day was allowed another day, and that kind of depended on my mood. That's not how God is. God is not telling us to do things or not do things just because of his mood, just because he wants to see us obey. There is something much more um, um, gracious. I want to think about command and context. The commands that we, we have in the New Testament, and please, let's not, be, let's not be afraid of calling them what they are. They're commandments. The, the sovereign God of heaven doesn't really teach by suggestion. He teaches by commandment or imperative. Commandments have been graciously supplemented by context. Commands are supplemented by context. And typically that context is dependent upon mortification. In other words, there is something behind the command that will be for God's glory and will be for our blessing in terms of growth and development of our Christian life. We cannot escape the reality that spiritual growth, in part, is dependent upon mortification. If if we just say, I, I'm not going to worry about it, I'm just going to, I'm just going to move on, I'm not going to worry about it at all, or I would say, I'm just going to look at the, at the positive things, the virtue lists, or I'm going to, I'm going to try to find a way to manage sin so I don't really have to try to mortify it, I just kind of manage it and not worry about all the details. None of that's going to work. None of that is going to, is going to give us spiritual growth. None of that is going to bring conformity to Christ and glory to God. But mortification will. Putting to death those things will do that. Just real quickly, and then I'm going to stop. I'm, I'm going to give several examples of, 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 of the integration of mortification with other principles. First, mortification and the Holy Spirit. Mortification and the Holy Spirit. We will look at Romans chapter 8, verse 13 later. It says, for if ye live after the spirit, ye shall, after the flesh, ye shall die. But if ye through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. This tells me that mortification is an element of sanctification that operates under the power of the Holy Spirit in cooperation with the believer. Now, you understand that, young folks, right? There is nothing I can do to save myself. There's no, there's no virtue, there's no work that I can do. Salvation is of the Lord. It is through faith in Jesus Christ. That's how I'm justified. Sanctification is a different situation. It is a cooperative effort between the believer and the Holy Spirit. That's what Romans 8.13 is telling us. Because it is the work of the Spirit, it leads to Christ, it leads to life, it leads to freedom. You can find that in John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15. Listen carefully to what Paul says earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 5. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So if, 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 if I've got this vice list active in my life, and I'm just going to focus on this virtue list, what's really happening? What's working in tandem? I'm trying to adopt this virtue list into my life, but all the while I've got this carnality, this fleshly stuff that's going on in my, in my life. But the scripture says, what the, this authoritative scripture that Dean talked about, says that all of that fleshly stuff is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God. It is a constant drag in my effort to be conformed to the image of Christ. And, and Paul says in Romans 8 that if you were going to experience life, it's going to be through mortification by the work of the Holy Spirit in cooperation with the believer. Number two, mortification and daily communion with God. I would recommend you read 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1. 
mortification and daily communion with God. Brothers and sisters, we all know this, don't we? But do we but the question is, do we always perform it? We know that we can't come before God and back here in this little corner of our heart are these cherished little sins that we have. Anger, bitterness, you name it. And we just think, God's just going to bless me because, yeah, that's there, but I'm going to come into his presence and I'm going to tell him how great he is and I'm going to, I'm going to really extol these, all these virtues he wants in my life and, and thank him for his grace and his Holy Spirit and his forgiveness. But back here is a door that I prefer not to open. Ah, that's so retarded. That, that, you know that doesn't work. I know that doesn't work. It will never work. That is just, that is just mindless thinking. But if we're not careful, we do it. And Paul is telling us here to have communion, to have daily meaningful interaction with God through Jesus Christ. We must mortify the deeds of the body. Number three, mortification and putting on Christ. Let me read three verses from Romans chapter 13. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Notice the urgency in Paul 2,000 years ago. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let's kill the works of darkness, cast them away from us, and put on the armor of light. Put on the armor of life. Put on the armor of the Spirit. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. Do you know why? If we hide, let's go back to that door, that door that has just a few pet things in it, like maybe I want to harbor some anger or bitterness, or maybe I'm proud, or maybe I'm whatever. And I guess it's just back there. Do you, do you realize what Paul just said here at the end of the, of the 14th verse? The only reason to keep that is so we can fulfill its lust. It's the only reason. There's no other reason to keep it. The only reason we keep carnality in our life is because we like it and we want to fulfill its lust. You, you, you see how mutually exclusive progress in conformity to Christ is with a lack of mortification of sin? And then the last one was mortification and the importance of love. I just want to read three verses Three passages to you. Colossians 3.14, And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. We talked about that. Romans chapter 13, verse 8, Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. How important is love in the life of an individual and in the life of the church if it is a characteristic of our lives that actually fulfills the law of God. In Romans, earlier in Romans 8, Paul talks about those of us who walk after the Spirit are fulfilling the righteousness of the law. If we walk after the Spirit, then we'll be mortifying the deeds of the flesh. We'll be mortifying those selfish things that prevent us from loving as God loves us, as Christ has loved us, And the third passage is one I referred you to earlier. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. When I look at the biblical principle of love, I wonder why do we not have more teaching on the importance and the results of true agape love. Because keeping true agape love fulfills the righteousness of the law. True agape love, if, if, if you accept my interpretation of an earlier verse, is the virtue that when it runs through all other virtues, binds them together in perfect harmony. Without love, 1 Corinthians 13 says, I can't do anything. 
with love active in my life and and the work of the of the of the Lord. Not you notice in Paul's writing, he's not saying that the Lord make you to have love. The assumption in that language is that love already exists, and it is the Lord who is going to increase and abound that love in our lives in order that He may establish our hearts unblameable in holiness at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. It has it has eschatological value in establishing us unblameable in holiness. If you if you couple that with what Jude says at the end of Jude that he that he is able to present us faultless before the throne of God, have you ever have you ever connected that that reality in Jude with the work of God to increase and abound love and establish you in unblameable in holiness? That connection is airtight. I need to stop. That's a survey, very quickly, of mortification in the New Testament. There is more to say about it. The New Testament writers will give us a lot of assistance in understanding how to purposefully and intentionally mortify the deeds of the flesh. And I'm saying, as graciously as I can, that is non-optional for us. If sin is still alive and we are neglecting it, we are compromising our progress in holiness. We are, in fact, living in contradiction to who we are, and we are clearly outside the realm of God's will for his people and for his church. May God bless you.